today on Owl Have You Know. We were able to try to compete in the market by coming at it in a different direction rather than just trying to put out product. We're trying to sell an experience where you, you really only can get our stuff by coming to us. Hey, this is David Drugliver. Thank you for coming again to listen to an episode of Rice Business Owl Have You Know podcast. I am on the line here with Alex Porter. So Alex Porter is an entrepreneur, a business owner, and uh, he has a couple of real retail operations and breweries. And I will let you, Alex, explain all that fun stuff. So needless to say, I think there's a lot to talk about here. But first and foremost, thank you for coming on. I will have you know. Yeah, thank you. Uh, hey, David, uh, I'm class of 18 uh, at the Jones School. Um, we, we have two locations that are completely you know, related. It's uh, Southern Yankee Beer Company. Uh, which is our brewery that we opened in 2018 up on the north end of Houston, just south of Spring. And then uh, we just uh, last year graduated to Restaurant Group by opening an expansion satellite in uh, Montrose, not too far from the Rice campus, actually. There's a lot there. And I, I first have to ask, I always like to understand uh, people's inspiration. So the Southern Yankee Beer Company, which is your first shop to open, is that something that you ideated in in school or is that something that started before then yeah it, it actually started back in 2015 when uh, my dad and i were like hey let you know it'd be cool let's let's open a brewery you know not really knowing what we were getting into but uh we we recruited my sister to be the brewer she spent a few years learning uh going to school doing some internships uh worked at carbach and platypus here before we got going in 2018 um but I went to Rice really specifically so I could learn how to actually administer the business. You know, that worked out pretty well. Uh, that said, I think sometimes in finance class, you you don't understand uh, when you're making these financial models, you're like, well, it's just a model. One of the things that we didn't do particularly well is some of the risk analysis on my model. My cost was like right on point, but man, the revenue projections were super rosy. Uh, it took a lot longer to get there than uh, I, I I would have expected. But, you know, like all the training at Rice has just been, you know, invaluable. You know, I, I'm our accountant, uh, strategist. I, I, I wear a lot of hats. Uh, you know, I'm sure as you talk to any anybody, you know, doing the entrepreneurship game, you know, you, you got a whole stack of hats you got to wear really every every day every week so your dad wanted to open a brewery so is this something that uh, essentially runs in the family now yeah yeah we started home brewing as a kind of a family hobby when i was like 10 um you know i was always helping out and getting to taste things early on <laughs> and um you know it, it just kind of morphed into like hey you know maybe we could get get into this business and Fortunately, unfortunately, there, there's been kind of a craft beer renaissance in, in the States that one of the challenges we've found is that uh, the barriers to entry are pretty low. Um, and so we're constantly having to hustle to get keep our name in conversation because there's so much competition now. There's like uh, 60, 70 breweries around Houston now. You know, 10 years ago, I think there was three, four. You know, it, it's... It's been an exercise in in hustling and active marketing uh, that that 
you know, the, that was really the main reason we decided to do the satellite restaurant because we needed to extend our reach without trying to compete for taps and shelf space with, you know, 50 other breweries trying to, you know, get a six to 10 feet of shelf space in a, in a grocery store, or 10, 15, 20 taps on a bar, you know, rather than doing that, we're like, let's just open our own place and we control the entire experience. We were actually able to, you know, recruit a pretty solid chef to build a, a real uh, uh, food program too. Up at the brewery, we just, you know, we have a pretty excellent food truck, but it is just a food truck. There's a limit to what you can do with that. At the second location, uh, you know, we, we were able to kind of really round out our, our whole menu and uh, try to compete in the market by coming at it in a different direction rather than just trying to put out product, sell product. We're trying to sell an experience where you, you really only can get our stuff by coming to us. Someone needs to come up with like the Starbucks of breweries. Starbucks of breweries is going to, that, that's what puts, uh, puts people like me out of business. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, where I come from that is I mean, that was one of the first case studies that, that we studied in business school. And the thing I remember from that case study is that this idea of having a middle place between, you know, work and home, that was the experience that whole that needed to be filled. So it ended up becoming the go-to place where you didn't even think about it. So what I'm saying is like, okay, the the place for craft brews, you don't even think about, about it. You go to Southern Yankee beer or to the craft house yeah. kind of thing. Mm. That, that, that's a fair point. I, I think when the craft beer, you know, renaissance or whatever uh, uh, started, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago here, it was acceptable to have a, a, a little tap room in a, in a shack or a warehouse. And people are like, yeah, this is cool because you get better beer than you can get elsewhere. But now that's not enough. Like you have to have a comfortable place. You have to, you know, have amenities, entertainment, uh, food. You can't just have good beer. That's not good enough anymore. Uh, to your point, like it, it has to be kind of that holistic experience place that you go for, you know, entertainment and, and enjoyment rather than just a product. There's a lot to unpack here. I wanted to go back to your comment around the barriers to entry, which is, it's, that's a really interesting one to explore. And what does it look like to enter into the market? Like, How do you go from zero to hero in, in this, this space? That is the question. I, I can tell you how to get into it, how to, how to be a hero <laughs> is, is the hard part. Uh, you know, honestly, like, you know, there's a new spot going in downtown where, uh, you know, you got a group that's spending $3 million on a big build out and they're going in with no offense to them, a home brewer with no commercial experience. There's just a ton of money flowing into the, 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 the market. And that makes it challenging to compete because it's all this fresh money it's not profitable, smart money, but it's stuff that I have to now compete against because there's just tons of people getting into it. Um, you know, that you can get into it uh, at, a, at a much smaller size. We certainly did. We, we produce beer about 100 gallons at a time, like six half barrel kegs. Uh, that allows us to be super agile and we have a ton of different uh, uh, beers on it at any given time, and, and we're able to 
rotate through a lot and keep keep it really fresh. Unfortunately, that also means that uh, you know my my cost, my overheads are relatively high per my volume. Uh, and, and you see a huge range of that across the market, just in Houston, certainly across the the, the nation. I mean, I mean, people get into it with a two barrel system, a one barrel system. And while that is almost certainly not going to be profitable, it increases market supply such that in order to compete, you, you can't compete on price. You have to compete on something special something new, always hustling, right? Uh, so I, I don't know. I'm not quite bearish on the market, but I'm, I'm, uh, some of my rosy projections that I had when I was all you know romantic about the, the market getting into it definitely have been tempered by experience. And so how do you keep that fresh? I, I took a quick look at some of your socials. You have various events. Uh, you have, it seems like a constant rollout of, of new beers and formulations and really funny names, which I really want to ask you about. So what does that sort of creative and production process look like to constantly be iterating like that? I, I, I got to, you know, give a hand to, to my sister, who's our, our head brewer. Uh, you know, she's the creative drive b- behind the products. Uh, the naming and designing is a team effort. Uh, but, it, but again, she, she does a lot of the uh, artwork um, uh, which we then send to uh, our, our designer here in town, Padron Designs Studio, um, who does really, really great work on our can labels and our bottle labels. Um, what, what, what we did is we basically took a look at our sales velocity of each type of product, and we used that to kind of make lanes for... Uh, the individual styles that we want to have. So it wouldn't make sense, for example, to have six brown ales on tap at one time. Those just don't sell very fast. They're amazing. I love them. They just don't sell it very fast. But what, we, what we've done is we've basically found the optimum spread of styles. Like I need to have four IPAs on it at any given time. And, and that's the fastest selling product, right? So we have to keep that pipeline going. Um, so we basically plan three to six months out on what products we're going to make next and then kind of use a pull system as a product gets used up. Uh, the next one in line will be scheduled according to when it's going to be needed. Uh, that, that way we keep the right mix of products available at any given time and we don't, we're not over inventory. You don't want a lot of beer aging too long. Some beers... You want to age a little bit, but for the most part, beer is best fresh. So, uh, you know, we try to stay real efficient with, uh, with, with our production. That's gotten a lot easier, actually, with the second location because our throughput is just, you know, it's a lot closer to kind of an optimum capacity. We're running, you know, any given week, we're probably 60 to 80% capacity in our brew house. I'd like to get up to 100%, but then, you know, you run into some other issues of trying to keep keep your stuff in inventory it's only increased in pace now that we have the second location to pull to pull volume uh but that's a good problem to have and on the two locations is there you mentioned earlier sort of like a synergy between the two perhaps if one person goes to one they're more likely to go to the other 
Can you talk to us about how those two have perhaps your initial intention on how those two locations would help each other and how it actually ended up turning up? And I know it's fairly recent since the second has opened up, but wh where are you in that sort of exploration process? So, I mean, my initial assumption when we located up in the north end of town is that everyone would come to us. That that was uh, overly uh, optimistic. Uh, I, I didn't quite realize the extent to which people do not want to leave the loop. Uh, so we located in the heart of Montrose, which is, you know, 25 minutes from the other location. But like, unless you're, you're, you're actively traveling to one or the other, we're not going to be cannibalizing either market. Uh, be, because for the most part, our, our, our strong, our strongest business up at the brewery is, you know, your commuters that are passing through that area anyway. And then people that just live in five, 10 mile radius which does not intersect with the same people uh, down, down in Montrose. So down there, our lunch crowd is, is you know, we're, we're a mile from downtown. There's a lot, of, a lot of people that work in the area, and that's our lunch crowd. And then it's a, you know, strongly residential area there uh, that, that we get a ton of walking traffic. It's a very walkable neighborhood. Um, you know, we're, we're lucky enough to have a, a decent-sized parking lot across the street. So I don't know if that answered your question, but... Uh, really trying to grab a whole nother chunk of, uh, of, of people rather than, you know, extending our existing people. Absolutely. That very, that crystallized, uh, in my mind, um, what that relationship looks like. And I want to go back to risk. So, so you had a, seems like a lot to say about the, the risk part. And as I was noodling on the next question in my head, I was, I wanted to ask, of course, if you're in the retail space, how COVID has impacted you, but but let me zoom. It's almost too cliche to ask. So let me zoom out and just say, from a risk perspective, you know, going all the way back to 2015, and then your experience in school in 2018, and standing up the company, having these new realizations in terms of not just list them out here because you said them competition, of course, barriers to entry, uh, inventory challenges, and then what I wrote down as a product experience mix, how to optimize that. And obviously the list goes on and on and on and the financials and the back office stuff. So from your perspective, um, help us understand from your initial view, what you thought some of the primary risks would be. And then going forward, how did that sort of risk calculus start to change and fluctuate? And, and where do you land now in terms of the pecking order, if you will, of risk to growing your business? So <laughs> I did not do a risk analysis before opening this. Uh, I was just like, look, build it and they will come. Uh, and unfortunately, we were just overly optimistic on that. Um, uh, you know, you throw COVID in. I, I mean, COVID hit us 15 months into uh, being open. We were just starting to hit our, hit our uh, you know, our growth curve. And then boom, it just, you know. Talk about an idiosyncratic risk. I, I, I mean, I don't. I don't even know what to think of as risk versus just the new normal. Uh, you know, that it's not a risk of people not coming in as much as they used to. They just don't. Uh, and 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 so we've had to adjust our business model to be more reactive to actual circumstances at any given time, rather than assuming something is going to happen and you know you usually we would expect march to be a bigger month than february uh 
However, I'm not going to staff up for that until I see it. And what that means right now, and you probably see that around restaurants uh, all over the place, is that for two reasons. One, there's revenue and, and, and demand uncertainty, so you're not seeing the staff levels because it's expensive. And two, because you don't see the demand and so much of the restaurant industry is tip-driven, you're not seeing the staff wanting to work in the industry so much. Again, I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, if you were to do a classic like strategy industry analysis, this is... I cannot imagine a worse industry to get into. Like, <laughs> like, just don't do it. <laughs> Are there like beer consultants out there, you know, that, that you've tapped that have brought in some external wisdom, perhaps? Like, do you work with third parties to perhaps help to assess the market or decide on the path forward or help to reconstruct your strategy? No, I mean, they, those people exist, uh, you know, where I've seen them most active is in, you know, assisting startups because there've been so many of them over the last, you know, however many years. Uh, I'm sure that they, you know, exist for, you know, demand consulting or something like that. But given that we don't have the volume to do, you know, directed distribution, it's kind of not really something we consider. Um, that's a, actually a good pivot or segue to my next question, and, and perhaps I should have asked this towards the beginning, is more of a question of who are your customers. I think it's easy to see the, the retail component. You go in and you can order food and beer, but are there other uh, customer streams? Um, you just sort of alluded to not having a direct-to-distribution, so, but I don't want to assume that that's not or is there a business-to-business. -business. So is there... Or are there other channels um, where you're reaching customers, whether it's you know to other businesses, to stores, uh, to other places that want to, or restaurants that want to serve your beer? Like who else are, are do you consider your customers or end customers? Uh, so our customers are people who walk in our doors. Um, you know, we 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 just don't have the volume to be able to compete on price with Stone, Saint Arnold. Yingling. I mean, Yingling just entered the, the Texas market. They're selling a, a, a half barrel keg of Yingling lager for $110. Uh, I mean, that is... Nobody can compete with that. Like, Budweiser can compete with that. That's it, right? Uh, you know, Stone uh, out of California is selling a keg of IPA for 150 Like, that's just... like. If you're if you're talking about price and the value to that those bars, which right now, given demand, mostly are are struggling, uh, you know, McIntyre's and some of the the like, you know, <laughs> accepted. Uh, it's hard to make a justification to a beer buyer to buy my stuff over their stuff when their you know marketing and brand is so much bigger than ours, right? So again, I go back to why we opened our own second location is because it's a dedicated uh, outlet for our volume where I don't necessarily need to sell the beer brand as much. I can focus on selling the experience, the food, the spot. Uh, and, and then, you know, the fact that all of that is great and the beer is great all works together holistically to make a successful experience. I hope.
we'll see. We're still uh, we're still starting up. So, I mean, uh, so far the the reactions have been great. Uh, our, our reviews are pretty solid. I, I I just can't complain about our people. Like we we run real lean. They work really hard. If I was to try to answer your question holistically, we cannot compete with the big beer guys. We just can't. And so I'm not going to. Uh, we're going to compete in the local restaurant market, which we can compete in. Okay, I have two questions, and perhaps we can land the ship. One more looking backwards and one more looking forwards. So I have to ask, and I think it's so exciting and interesting to talk to entrepreneurs because you learn so much, and they take on so much more risk than, say, someone who has a steady W-2, and there's nothing wrong with that, and it's just different types of stories. So looking backwards, and you go back however long a time horizon you want to what's the one thing that you wish you had done uh, differently in regards to growing your business uh i would have located inside the loop like boom that's like i i I, that that is the number one thing that we should have done um you know that that was just a failure of geographic analysis you know so so that that's the first thing and and really the only thing I would I would change, <laughs> I mean, everything else like honestly like our 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 products are great, our experience is great. It's just uh, there's there's it's just not a great geography up in the north end of town. Montreux is a lot different, so uh, you know maybe it turns out over the next uh, co- over the coming years. Hopefully it you know turns out you know well. Okay, and then looking forward, just pull out the magic wand in your pocket there. And obviously, if you're running a business, you're very likely looking to to grow the business. If it's not uh, growing, it's dying. I'm I'm pretty sure um, that philosophy is is out there, and, and people ascribe to that. So I have to ask, what um, what does that magic wand's future state look like? You know, call it five years from now. Um, you know, is it a nationwide expansion? Is it multiple locations? Is it just making the current locations out much more profitable? Uh, what does the uh, magic wand's future state look like for you? Yeah. Magic wand, uh, uh, strategy is, you know, we launch off this second location and that volume drives the build, uh, hub and spoke model of a central brewery and multiple, uh, uh satellite restaurants. With that, you know, higher profit mixed beverage permit, doing a full bar, having the beer, having the food, but all service from that single uh, uh, brewery where we're like really maxing out capacity and being as fit, as efficient as possible. Wow, that's, I love that. That's the dream. <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah, that's the dream. <laughs> uh, that that's that's beautiful. I love that you have that that vision. So. Uh, and then the last one, just for fun, um, I don't have the list of the funny names. I actually know. Okay, the one off the top of my head, I thought that stood out to me, one of the funny beer names, and I'm not going to see the B word, so it rhymes with fuzzy plastered. So I just, I just love that one. It just yeah. popped out to me. Yeah, the label's pretty fantastic too. With uh, you know the the chubby guy in a pink shirt and a tutu. It, I, I honestly, I don't remember how we got that. But you know, it's a cream ale. It is super good. It's super clean. There's, it's super simple. And we just wanted something, you know, funny and cheeky to uh, be on the label for it. <laughs> Love it. I think the creative element says a lot about the ethos of the company and what you're getting. So 
Alex, hey, this has been awesome. And thank you everyone for tuning in. So if folks want to either learn more, experience more, or otherwise connect with you, what are some of the recommended modalities to, to dive in a little deeper? Facebook, Instagram, our website, or, you know, best ever just come out. Like, uh, I've got two locations in Houston. One uh, about five minutes from the Rice campus. So if you're around, come on down. All right. Well, there's the call to action. If you're listening, then uh, connect with Alex. Um, we'll put the, the links on the show notes, I'm sure. And uh, pay him a visit. And um, hopefully you'll be hosting another event soon. Um, so I can come down. I know the reunion's coming up here in a couple of months. So I already have a reason to come down and, and say hey and check out your places. So everyone else do the same. So, Alex, any final pearls of wisdom to send out to the rice business community and beyond before we adjourn? Uh, I don't. I don't think I. I have any wisdom to give. <laughs> well, you already have. So, uh, thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, it's it's quite exciting to see that trajectory. So, um, I can't wait for everyone to check this out and take care. Thanks, David. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it. Let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, Christine Dobbin, and David Drew Gleaver. 